0: Our lecture today comes from uh, the class notes starting on page 204 and uh, at this point in the class we are now into the 19th century of church history and we'll spend the last few weeks looking at the 19th century and the first 50 years give or take of the 20th century. So we have about 150 years of historical theology left in terms of the chronology that we cover in this class. The goal of this class is to get up to about 1950 and I think we're right on track to get there in the next few weeks as we finish up the lectures. In the 19th century, uh, we see a dramatic really explosion of Christian growth around the globe. Christianity really becomes global Christianity in the 19th century. We're talking about the 1800s. And uh, some of that is seen even in the Second Great Awakening, which we've already studied in this class. The Second Great Awakening really encompasses in American church history the first 25 to 30 years of the 19th century, up to about 1830, with even some spillover into the 1840s and 50s then being interrupted in America by the Civil War. But the outgrowth and the results of the Second Great Awakening are seen at least in, from the perspective of how we treat things in this class, really in three different categories. When you think of what was produced or what came out of the Second Great Awakening, there are three categories that we're going to look at. And uh, to borrow an old movie title, we're going to look at things that were good and things that were bad and things that were ugly. Okay? So there's the good, the bad, and the ugly of the offshoots of the Second Great Awakening, or at least offshoots of 19th century Christianity. There's these three categories, and those three categories fit a lot of areas of life. The the good, we're not going to look at today. We're going to look at that on Thursday. The good is the modern missions movement, which is really what makes 19th century Christianity global in its scope. And of course, we could go back to early the early centuries of Christian history, and we could see that the gospel went south into Africa and east into Asia and north into Europe very early on. And and yet, um, in a modern perspective, uh, post-Reformation perspective, the 19th century is the century of global and worldwide mission. So we'll look at that on Thursday. That's that's the good, and there, there's other good that comes out of the Second Great Awakening as well. The fundamentalist movement is one of the good products of the Second Great Awakening. Then, on the week after, next week, we'll look at some of the ugly things that come out of the Second Great Awakening because the spiritual fervor of the Second Great Awakening uh, produces, in some cases, uh, bad spiritual zeal and we see that in the growth of the American cult groups and cult movements. So there's a whole movement that comes out of the Second Great Awakening called the Restorationist Movement. The Restorationist Movement claims that it's getting back to the early church and it's getting back there by skipping pretty much everything in church history. And out of this Restorationist Movement comes things like the Church of Christ, out of which come even movements like the Boston Church of Christ and the L.A. Church of Christ. And out of the Church of Christ even comes a movement called called the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. The Mormon Church is an offshoot of the Church of Christ. And so we'll talk about Mormonism. And then out of the Second Great Awakening comes the Millerite movement, which produces Seventh-day Adventism and also produces the Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower Society movement. And even part of the Restorationist movement in the late 1800s, early 1900s, is the birth of the Pentecostal movement, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So we've got kind of the good in the modern missions movement and the ugly in some of these cult movements that are started. Today we're going to talk about the bad. And the bad isn't so much a product of the Second Great Awakening as it is a competing theological system that grows out of the Enlightenment, and becomes really the major threat to biblical Christianity as we get into the second half of the 19th century and especially in the early 20th century. And it is the birth of liberalism. So liberalism is what I am categorizing here as the bad. And of course we're talking about theological liberalism and higher criticism. Those two things go really hand in glove with one another and uh, we'll discuss exactly what we mean by that as we go through today's lecture because I think there's a lot that we have to learn from the 19th century German liberals and then their British and American counterparts. All of this, by the way, is leading to a massive conflict in the early 20th century within the mainline American denominations. There will be among the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians There will be those who are liberal in their thinking and those who are fundamentalist in their thinking. And in the 1920s and 30s, those denominations will split between fundamentalists and liberals, such that today, most of the mainline denominations we would look at and say, well, they've gone liberal. Well, when did that happen? That happened in the late 19th, early 20th century. And today's lecture helps explain the history of where those ideas came from. Now I I start this lecture with a reference back to Augustine because I I think this is really helpful to see that liberalism really isn't anything new. Liberalism and higher criticism and by higher criticism we're talking about those individuals who would cast doubt and uh, dispersion upon the historical accuracy of the Bible itself. Who would deny inspiration and would, along with it, often call into question whether or not certain books of the Bible ought to be viewed as authoritative, inspired, and even as being written by the human authors who historically have been associated with those books. So here's Augustine, way back in the late 4th, early 5th century, responding to an advocate of the Manichaean heresy. Manichaeanism attempted to Uh, Combined Zoroastrianism with certain elements of Christianity. It's obviously a complete false religion. It was an early cult. And uh, the Manichaeans, in order to support their views, uh, they obviously had to call certain portions of Scripture into question. And so here, Augustine is responding to Faustus, and Faustus was one of these Manichaean. Heretics, Faustus was calling into question certain aspects of the Gospels. And uh, Augustine goes through and he answers the specific charge because he's, uh, Faustus is calling into question whether or not Matthew could have included something in his Gospel if Matthew wasn't part of the disciples yet. He hadn't been saved yet, wasn't following Jesus yet. How could Matthew know to include that in his Gospel account? And Augustine is saying, that's ridiculous. He just talked to the other disciples who were there. So Matthew talked to John, figured it out, and included it in his gospel. That's not a problem. But Faustus is trying to cast doubt on the historic authenticity of the gospel of Matthew in particular. And so Augustine there at the end uh He's talking about John now. He's saying, look, John didn't include everything. John omitted certain things, and he did that intentionally because John intended his gospel to be a supplement. But I really like this line at the end because I think this line is, and this is an anachronistic way to explain this, but I think this line is Augustine's response to the liberals and the higher critics. He says this to Faustus, You ought to say plainly, that you do not believe the Gospel of Christ. For to believe what you please and not to believe what you please is to believe yourselves and not the Gospel. And that is very much what we see when we come to study the higher critics and come to study the liberal theologians. Is They want to believe certain parts of the Gospel and they want to call themselves Christians and yet they don't want to believe other parts of the Gospel And so they pick and choose, and they believe what they want, and they don't believe what they want. And Augustine's point is, you guys should just fess up to the fact that you don't want to believe the Gospels at all. Because the only believe part of it is to believe yourselves and not the Gospel. Obviously, when we go back and look at the Reformation, we see that Protestant Reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther and others held the scriptures to be authoritative, inspired, and inerrant. That inerrancy applies then not just to the ethical and moral parts of scripture, but it applies to also the historical facts of scripture. That the Bible is true. It is true in its historical information, just as it is true in its information regarding ethical and moral propositions. So the reformers approach the Word of God they approach it using a literal hermeneutic, they take it at face value and they recognize it to be inspired and authoritative in its details, accurate in its historic details, just as it is accurate in its moral precepts. This begins to come under attack during the Age of Enlightenment. Remember we put those four categories on the board when it came to authority structures that people base their beliefs on. Everyone believes something based ultimately on authority. And so we have the Roman Catholic Church, which had made its authority religious tradition. And then we have the Reformers, who rightly understood that the only true authority is the revealed Word of God. It is divine revelation, which is the only right authority. But then in the 1600s, in the 17th century, we have the birth of rationalism. Baruch, uh, not Baruch Spinoza, he's in my notes there. Um, René Descartes uh, wrote his famous Discourse on the Method in in which he claimed that human reason is the way in which we ought to think about everything in the world. Then we have Sir Francis Bacon who develops the scientific method and then John Locke who develops the idea of empiricism. Science is the way in which we ought to think about everything in the world. And so the Enlightenment combines those two ideas and says human reason and science, the scientific method, those are the ultimate standard of authority. We also had around that time the birth of Romanticism, which will become significant in just a moment. It's not long before Enlightenment scholars or scholars influenced by enlightenment thinking begin to say hey you know what maybe we should view the Bible not as a supernatural book that comes from God in other words it's not our authority anymore but rather reason and science are our authority so let's view the Bible as just another human book and let's apply to the Bible all of the scientific literary rationalistic criticism and critical methods that we would apply to any other book And what we'll come to find is that the Bible actually becomes more attacked and more scrutinized than any other book. But Baruch Spinoza is really the first to do this. Spinoza was not a Christian. He was a Dutch Jewish philosopher. He was actually ostracized from his Jewish community because of his radical ideas. But he taught that the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that they were not inspired or inerrant but they they were just like any other human book. And so he taught then that he actually taught that God was just an impersonal abstract force, going even beyond the deists of the enlightenment age, and as a result he devalued and demoted the scriptures to a place where they could be viewed as being vulnerable to rationalistic attack. Building on Spinoza's premise then we have other scholars and we're just going to give a brief survey of some of the leading critics. We don't have everyone in this list but this is just a sampling. Leading historical <clears throat> higher critics and liberal theologians. And this list is organized chronologically. Johann Gottfried Eichhorn in the Late 18th, early 19th century. Taught in Germany. Most of these guys come out of the German universities. And it's it's somewhat sad to see that it is within the soils of, or it's on the soil of Reformation. Uh, I mean, we're only 200 years uh, removed from the Reformation at this point, And uh, yet... Uh, I suppose 250 years, by the time we get into the 1800s, we're 300 years removed. But just a few centuries removed from the Reformation, we have the very undoing of the Reformation in that very same part of the world. Pretty interesting. So Eichhorn is considered the uh, the founder, excuse me, I was trying to say father and founder at the same time, the founder of modern Old Testament criticism. These are things, by the way, which you will study in much greater detail when you get to your Old Testament introduction and New Testament introduction classes. Half the reason we have to have those classes is because a bunch of German theologians ruined it for everybody in the 19th century. These are the guys that ruined it for you. Eichhorn, the founder of modern Old Testament criticism, he concluded that the Hebrew scriptures had passed through several authors or editors before coming to their final form. These authors or editors uh, become known later as redactors. He assumed that everything supernatural recorded in the Old Testament could be explained through naturalistic means. There you see clear enlightenment influence on his thinking. Naturalism is it's the premise by which... Enlightenment thinkers think about the world. It is in direct opposition to the supernaturalism that characterizes the biblical worldview. He explained away miraculous events and concepts about God as being simply accommodations to an ancient way of thinking. He claimed that they had no real value for modern society. He questioned the supposed authorship of a number of biblical books, and he asserted that the Synoptic Gospels were based on an earlier Aramaic Gospel and this is really the origins of the source gospel, Q as it's often called, that uh, comes to be popular in modern New Testament criticism. So a lot of the early ideas start with Eichhorn which is really built, of course, on the premise of Spinoza, that the Bible is not an inspired authoritative record of divine revelation, it is instead just a compilation of human books that ought to be dismantled like any other human book. This brings us then to Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher is probably the most important name in this list. Schleiermacher, uh, interestingly enough, in German means veil maker and I think that's kind of interesting because Schleiermacher's conclusions do put a veil of doubt and a veil of error over those whom he influences. It's actually a really sad story. Friedrich Schleiermacher was born in Prussia. He was the son of an army chaplain from the reformed church. So his dad was essentially a pastor. And what we find with many of these guys is that they were the sons of Lutheran ministers. As a boy he was influenced by pietism. He went to the University of Halle, in fact, which had been a center of pietism for many years, but was now becoming a center of more secular, rationalistic thought and influences. When he got to university, I mean, it almost sounds like a modern story. A kid grows up in a Christian family, goes to a secular university, and when he gets there, he finds his faith challenged by the thinking of secular, enlightenment, rationalist scholars. And Schleiermacher is so overwhelmed with doubt as a result of these secular rationalistic attacks that he completely abandons his childhood faith. His own skepticism grows and he rejects then the orthodox Christianity of his father. Brian Garrish records what happened, and this is just really tragic. In a letter to his father, Schleiermacher drops the mild hint that his teachers fail to deal with those widespread doubts that trouble so many young people of the present day. His father misses the hint. Schleiermacher has himself, re- or his father has himself read some of the skeptical literature, he says, and he can assure Schleiermacher that it is not worth wasting time on. For six whole months, there is no further word from his son. Then comes the bombshell. In a moving letter, January 21st, 1787, Schleiermacher admits that the doubts alluded to are his own. His father has said that faith is the regalia of the Godhead, that is God's royal due. Schleiermacher confesses, faith is the regalia of the Godhead, you say. Alas, dearest father, if you believe that without this faith, no one can attain to salvation in the next world, nor to have tranquility in this, and such I know is your belief, oh then pray to god to grant it to me for to me it is now lost i cannot believe that he who called himself the son of man was the true eternal god i cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement so he goes off to school goes off to university and is so is so bogged down and distressed by the secular attack from the rationalistic critics that he experiences a shipwreck of faith and abandons his childhood Christianity. He graduates from Halle in 1794 for the next two years serves as a tutor and then in 1796 as a chaplain chaplain in a hospital as a pastor of a church in the early 1800's and then he himself becomes a professor at the University of Halle from 1804 to 1807 and then the University of Berlin and it is as now a theologian and a professor that he begins to promote his unorthodox views. Two books that are very important on religion 1799 and then the Christian faith from 1821 to 22 and in these works Schleiermacher does something very interesting He grew up in a Christian home. He doesn't want to abandon his Christianity. And yet, because he has allowed the rationalist skeptics to so undermine his confidence in the historical veracity and truth claims of Scripture, Schleiermacher finds himself wanting to maintain his Christianity, but being unwilling to believe that the Bible is actually true. So what do you do? If the Bible's not true, but you still want to be a Christian, how do you maintain a Christianity in which the Bible's no longer true? Well, Schleiermacher resolves that dilemma by finding a new foundation for his Christian faith. I mean, we would all agree that the Bible as historically true, including its comments about Jesus Christ as being both fully God and fully man, dying on the cross as a vicarious atonement for sin, rising literally and bodily from the dead, we would all agree that that historical, factual information is the foundation on which our Christian faith is built. Schleiermacher rejects that foundation but wants to maintain his Christian label. So he needs a new foundation. Where does he go to find that new foundation? Well rationalism had taken away the foundation he had been taught as a child. Where does he go then? He goes to Romanticism. Romanticism is the philosophical alternative to rationalism. Rationalism says everything's about reason and science. Romanticism says everything's about emotions, about feelings, about experience. And Schleiermacher thinks, hey, if I can ground my Christianity in my religious experience, the rationalists can't touch it because science and reason can't touch emotion and feeling and experience. And so we now have a new form of Christianity from Schleiermacher on. We come to call this liberalism. But liberalism is, in its essence, an attempt to maintain the label Christian, while denying the truth claims of Scripture and basing your Christianity in something other than the Bible. is the first to do that. And he does it by basing his Christianity in what he calls um, <clears throat> feelings of dependence on God. Cameron.
1: I think the real huge lesson I take from this is that Schleiermacher wasn't the problem. The problem really is that he's going to this school, he's graduating, they're appointing him to teach in the university where he's undermining everything. I mean, this is just a damnable indictment on the people who are leaders of these places. That a man who clearly repudiated the Christian faith, what do they do with him? They make him a lecturer at their college. They get him to pastor churches, and no one says boo. I mean, this was the shocking thing when I was reading um, Olson, as he's talking about. I'm like, I mean, he's he's not even he's not even playing postmodern games of trying to conceal what he believes. He's putting all his cards on the table. And and I think today, if, if, if what's happening today is is a fails to reflect on, on what happened here that you you cannot just take a soft approach to these people coming in with these new ideas. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no I think you're absolutely right and it shows the dangers in education when education is more about being philosophically broad and those kinds of things rather than maintaining those core convictions and Uh, historical presuppositions that have come to undergird what a Christian institution should be about.
1: When I lived in Europe, what what I was aghast about was, quite frankly, the, the cowardice of men in positions of church leadership. It just staggered me. But then I was absolutely shocked to realize that it's not a modern phenomenon. It goes right back to the 1700s. Absolutely. So that I was thinking, you know, there's been decline maybe the last 50 years or so. And I realized this goes back centuries. You're right. It goes, back to the, it
0: goes back to the, really the early 19th century there. But even a little bit before that with some of the predecessors. Yes. Um,
1: just a really uh, quick thought. Uh, the University of uh, Hale was the same university that, that the founders of pietism uh out, right? Yes. My question is this. When they rejected Lutheran scholasticism in favor of pietism, even though it was a necessary step, did that lead to liberal Christianity, liberal theology? Likewise, does this move away from doctrine, ecumenical movement away from doc- doctrine, do you think we're going to see a or are we seeing the same thing that we're seeing here
0: no i think you i think you make a good observation that as the pietists emphasized as the pietist emphasized really the human response to the gospel in terms of a holy life and in terms of religious experience they de- they did tend to swing the pendulum away from doctrinal orthodoxy or at least away from the insistence on people maintaining doctrinal orthodoxy and I think it does lead to problems. Is that something that we're still seeing today? Yeah, absolutely. I think we see I think we see little bits of all of these things going on today because the landscape today is you know at times you feel like you're living in the period of the judges where everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes and then blogging about it. All right, so with Schleiermacher, then, we have this major shift that is taking place in the way people think about Christianity. The fundamentalists who arise in response to the liberals, the fundamentalists are those who insist that if you're going to be a Christian, that Christianity has to be founded on the basic truth claims of the Bible. Fundamentals of the faith—that's where the word fundamentalist comes from. The liberals, on the other hand, reject the fundamentals of the Bible. They reject the Bible as an inspired and authoritative book. They reject the truth claims of the Bible. They see the Bible more as kind of an m- ancient version of Aesop's fables. Has some good moral information in it, uh, and it helps us be, you know, good ethical people. It can lead us in certain ways to depend on God. But we're going to base our Christianity now on something other than the historic understanding of the text. So here's Time Magazine. This is back in 1968. They did a special on Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, but it's, it's a helpful first paragraph. <coughs> it says this If God is not dead, how can man prove that he lives? Rational proofs cannot convince the skeptic. So that's the Enlightenment. Skeptic, The Bible alone is authority only to the convinced believer. So we have the fundamentalist and we have the rationalist. The demythologized universe no longer points to an unseen creator. One approach to an answer that appeals more and more to modern Protestant thinkers is the undeniable evidence of religious experience the intuition men have of their dependence on God. The popularity of this insight, in turn, leads back to the study of Friedrich Schleiermacher, the theologian who first developed it as a basis of Christian faith. After a generation of neglect, they go on then to talk about about Schleiermacher. And so then here, a little later in the article, in his best-known work on religion, Schleiermacher answered that faith is not based on doctrine or reason. So not based on doctrine, counter the reformers, not based on reason, counter the rationalist, but based upon, quote, man's feeling of absolute dependence and what he called a sense and taste for the infinite. What is that? Well, it's completely subjective, it's completely emotional, but it's completely consistent with romanticism because that is the place in which Schleiermacher felt that he found a safe haven for his Christianity, quote unquote, because that was outside of the reach of rationalist attack. Hence the birth of liberalism. Hence the birth of a form of Christianity that maintains the title, rejects the Bible, and seeks to live good moral lives, As essentially becomes nothing more than a rotary club in the name of Christian religion. All right, we move on from Schleiermacher to talk about just a few more individuals here. F.C. Bauer head of the Tübingen School of Theology. He applied Hegelian dialectics, the idea of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis to the 2nd century Christian community, which actually he credited 2nd and 3rd century Christianity with developing most of the Bible. He essentially taught that there were two forms of Christianity early on, a Pauline form of Christianity, and a Petrine form of Christianity, represented by Peter and James, as opposed to Paul. Paul emphasized grace, Peter and James emphasized works, and it was the second and third generation of the church that put together the New Testament and tried to harmonize that works-based Christianity with the grace-based Christianity. Uh, Bauer's views were very popular at their time. They have since been completely discredited because there have been earlier manuscripts of the New Testament that have been discovered, which have shown that his views of this later Christian community developing this stuff is totally false. But he gives us an example, again, of how a modern skeptic wreaks havoc. He's later proven to be false, and yet the destruction that he created in his own lifetime is irrecoverable. David Strauss Considered the father of the quest for the historical Jesus. Uh, That's still a phrase that is used to refer to historical Jesus studies. If you ever take a class with Dr. Farnell, he will probably refer to somebody uh, or a group of people who are involved in the historical Jesus studies. And uh, then he will go off on a long rant. Um, If you want to get Dr. Farnell to go off on a long rant, ask him about this topic. Strauss argued that there was the Jesus of history, that's the real Jesus who lived in the first century, and then there's the Jesus of faith, and that's the Jesus that was created by later Christians, and they kind of created this mythological Jesus. They essentially created a Superman views, version of Jesus. And uh, the Jesus of faith, he's the one that does miracles. He's the one that claims to be God. He's the one who does all of these amazing things. But the Jesus of history, the real Jesus, was really just this rabbi, kind of controversial, semi-controversial rabbi who lived in the first century. And we have to peel back the layers of mythology to get to the Jesus of history. So the Jesus of faith is the Jesus of the Bible, but the real Jesus, the Jesus of history is the one we have to get past all the mythology to discover. And there are guys who spend their entire lives and write hundreds and hundreds of pages and publish dozens of books about how to get past the Jesus of faith to discover the Jesus of history. It all starts with David Strauss. Strauss's work came into English, and his work in English influenced a number of Anglicans, including Benjamin Jewett, a Greek professor at Oxford and he wrote then a book called the Epistles of St. Paul and he began to promote these ideas in English and it will be in the late 19th century that English Christianity is highly influenced by these German uh, liberal higher critical ideas and from England it won't be long before it makes it across to New England and to North America. Uh, it's worth noting that The year before, in 1859, Charles Darwin published his Origin of Species, which gave people in that rationalistic, secular, skeptical community, it now gave them a cosmological grid that explained the development of life in this world apart from the Genesis account. And of course, we're all familiar with how even Christians today are still struggling with whether or not they're going to believe the Bible, or whether they're going to try and integrate biblical creation with some sort of Darwinian um, evolution. This brings us to Albrecht Richel. and I'm going quickly on purpose. Albrecht Richel is one who really gives birth to the social gospel, which is more or less where liberalism is today. Schleiermacher was the one who, pioneered the idea that Christianity we can still have Christianity even if we get rid of the Bible that's Schleiermacher's liberalism I'm here to tell you that that's not true but Schleiermacher thought it was that we could still have Christianity and get rid of the Bible and then he said we need a new foundation we will find it in romanticism ritual took that same paradigm we're gonna have Christianity we're gonna get rid of the Bible but instead of finding it in religious experience He founded his Christianity in moral ethics. And so it's all about society, and it's all about the good that you do in society. And he actually redefined justification and reconciliation in terms of not personal salvation from sin, but in terms of redeeming society through social work. He said it's about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. So Jesus gives us a good example. We should follow that example, and uh, this influences Americans in the early 20th century, like Walter Rauschenbusch, who writes about the social gospel. We'll study him more later. Also influences a guy named Charles Sheldon, who writes a very well-known book called In His Steps, which is the social gospel, all about you know what would Jesus do. That is initially a liberal idea in terms of taking social action. Now, I don't have a problem with WWJD as long as you construct it in a way that's biblical. But it's just interesting that historically, that comes out of this social gospel premise. So the social gospel is its no longer about personal salvation from sin. It's all about redeeming society. And of course, there's even evangelicals today who try and say that redeeming society is part of what we're supposed to be doing. I would argue that the redemption of society takes place as the redemption of individuals within society takes place as they are encounter, um, as they are saved by encountering the true gospel which we are mandated to proclaim. But we'll get into that whole discussion perhaps a little bit later. Ritual, then, is the one who slightly Modify Schleiermacher's idea by making social action the heart of Christianity, liberal Christianity, rather than either religious experience or the Bible. So the fundamentalists are still saying the Bible is the basis for Christianity. Schleiermacher says experience is the basis for Christianity, and in some ways the modern Pentecostal movement has followed Schleiermacher down that path. And then the liberals transition with ritual to say no, social action, Being good people in society, that is the basis of our Christianity. Going back to the higher critics, Wellhausen, he is the pioneer, the father of the documentary hypothesis. When you guys do your exegetical projects and you go down to the library and you get a commentary that talks about J, E, D, and P in the Pentateuch. Wellhausen is the one who first came up with that. Uh, it's the idea that there were four different people, all at different times, who, or four different groups of people, even all at different times, who wrote different parts of the Pentateuch, and then later redactors put them all together. Moses didn't write any of it. There was a guy who, known as the Yahwehist, J, he used the word Yahweh the most. That's how we know it's him. Then there was a guy named the Eloist. He used the word Elohim to refer to God. That's how we know it's him. And then Deuteronomy is clearly not something Moses would have written because it's a repeat of everything. So it's its own deal, the Deuteronomist. And then much later a guy named P felt like the priests were getting the short end of the stick. So he came along and wrote Leviticus. And that gives us the Pentateuch. Um, Modern biblical scholarship has gotten a lot more complex in the way that they talk about these things. but Source criticism, the idea that there's multiple sources that produce books, and then this is applied to Isaiah, and suddenly there's three Isaiahs. It's applied to the Gospels, and so on. This is where it begins. J, E, D, and P. Uh, Which is obviously ridiculous if you think about it in a modern context. Uh, You could take any modern Christian book and you could find places where the author refers to God as God, or refers to God as the Lord, or refers to God as the Father. I mean, there would be multiple titles that could be used. We don't automatically assume assume that Jerry Bridges didn't really write this whole book because he uses different names for God in different places. But it just shows, again, that unbelief really is the premise behind which all of this is operating. And so, how can we be most creative and clever in advancing our skepticism in the name of scholarship, in the name of scholarship, uh, but I, I don't want to confuse you at all by thinking that somehow this is really an academic pursuit. It is an academic pursuit on the one hand, I suppose, but it is really the it is really the uh, fruit of unbelief, liberalism, and higher criticism. Von Harnack, he rejects. The authenticity of books like the Gospel of John, he is the one who talks about, I, I mentioned the layers earlier, but von Harnock is really the one who uh, articulates that. He sees uh, the the reality of the historical truth of these Gospels as kind of a kernel that's hidden behind layers of what later editors or later groups added. And so he talks about peeling back the layers like you would peel back a... Cob of corn and ear of corn. You peel back the leaves to get to the kernel. That's von Harnock's idea. Harnock concludes that this kernel was Christ himself, as portrayed in the Synoptic Gospels. Yet Harnock believes that there was a great deal of added embellishments. And so here's where Harnock gets. This is the Jesus that Harnock discovers after all of this. It says, His words breathe peace, joy, and certainty. He lived in the continual consciousness of God's presence. Sounds like Schleiermacher there. His eyes rested kindly about the whole world. He ennobled it by his presence, and he recognized everywhere the hand of the living God. That's von Harnock's view of Jesus. Sounds like something straight out of Hallmark. So, again, it's all about this idea that uh, you know Jesus was a good person, and... and, and Even the controversies about him, Harnock saw as being things that were either misunderstandings or later embellishments that were added. Well, this liberal idea of we're all going to be good people and Christianity is going to make us good people, but we have a Christianity for the modern world, it's not tied to that ancient book, it's tied to modern ideas of morality or modern ideas of religious experience. That's all well and good when everybody is getting along and society seems to be advancing and isn't this great. When World War One comes along, and then a few years later, World War II, liberalism is pretty well shattered, at least the optimism of liberalism. Now, liberalism still continues, certainly, in the mainline denominations here. It is still alive and well. But in terms of it being promoted actively in its classic liberal sense, the two world wars shattered the optimism and the confidence in humanism that really... Uh, liberalism had come to be identified and defined by. So here's Richard Niebuhr. Richard Niebuhr is a neo-Orthodox, and we'll talk a little bit about neo-Orthodoxy later. I certainly don't agree with everything Richard Niebuhr wrote and said, but he got it right in this one. He summed up the bankruptcy of liberal theology with these words. Liberalism teaches that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's the complete neutering of everything that really matters in terms of those biblical propositions that relate to the fundamentals of Christianity and the biblical gospel. Uh, Gunkel, also a son of a Lutheran pastor, originator of form criticism so we had source criticism It's the idea that there's different sources we have redaction criticism that's the idea that there were different editors then we have form criticism which says well let's not look at the source let's look at the end result and oh this is a parable that's a certain form oh this is a sermon that's a certain form this is an epistle oh that's a certain form and they start to uh, especially in the Gospels say well you know the parables come from this time and the, and the sermons come from this time and, and di- you know the narrative portions come from this time because they all took different forms. As though a human author can't employ different forms in one piece of literature. Boltmann, a name that you might recognize, took form criticism and really popularized it in the early 20th century and it was all about deconstruction and demythologizing the Gospels including the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John and one thing that I think is really interesting is that Boltmann actually thought he was doing a service to the Bible because he thought you know there's there's some really good stuff in here that people need to know we just have to get rid of all of the myths and all of the stories that aren't true and if we can rescue Jesus from the Bible then we'll actually do an evangelical task in uh, making the true Jesus more acceptable to modern society. Uh, The irony is that in trying trying to save the gospel, he was actually undoing the very thing he said he was trying to do. Kind of like Schleiermacher, who said he was trying to save Christianity from the rationalists, and in the end he was actually destroying the very thing he said he was trying to save. All right, this gives us some final thoughts here. There was, during this time in the early 20th century, a mighty mighty battle that was taking place. The fundamentalists were fighting against the liberals, especially in the American denominations, for control of those denominations. We'll talk about what happened. There was a response to liberal theology in Europe called Neo-Orthodoxy. Neo-Orthodoxy meaning it was closer to orthodoxy, but it wasn't quite there. (laughs) I think it's the best way to say that. Uh, Neo-Orthodoxy, obviously, new orthodoxy. Uh, Bart, who had grown up in liberal theology when World War I hit, saw the bankruptcy of that system and rejected it. But Bart still had some issues. Uh, I have here Bart is helpful in his emphasis on God's sovereignty and in his response to the liberals, but he has troubling views on the nature of Scripture, such that he denies the inerrancy and authority of Scripture's propositional statements. Bart also waffles on the historical authenticity of certain events the Bible describes, including the resurrection. So, Bart was, he was not clear on whether or not he actually believed in a bodily, physical resurrection. So, there's, there's some problems with Bart. And I'm not going to read you what Grenz and Olson said because you guys had to read that already. Uh, I think the best way for us to think about BART, and I've given you an appendix here that goes into more detail on Neo-Orthodoxy, which I'll let you look at on your own. I think the best way to think about BART is, and I think maybe I mentioned this, I heard one historian say that it's like eating fish. You always have to pick out the bones, and with BART, there's a lot of bones. And then I recently heard somebody say, you know, it wasn't particularly with reference to BART, it was with reference to another pseudo-Christian author, pseudo-evangelical author. Um, this person said, you know, there's other places to get cheese than in a mousetrap. And uh, I think that's maybe true uh, with some of these folks. Is Are there some good things that they say? Yes, but do you really want to go there when there's so many other resources where you can get better information? Um, one kind of, well... Uh, I'll come back to that if we have time. We're running out of time, and I want to get through all of this today. Uh, old school liberals, if we fast forward to today, old school liberal ideas continue to permeate Protestant Christianity. Mainline denominations are largely liberal, and even within broader evangelicalism, authors like Brian McLaren continue to promote liberal ideas in a postmodern context, what we would call the emergent church, the left wing of the emerging church, which is largely dead, so it's almost pointless to talk about it anymore higher critics of the Bible like Bart Ehrman also continue to deconstruct it and for the most part these higher critics claim that none of the Old Testament is authentic and that in the New Testament only eight books are considered authentic Romans Galatians 1st and 2nd Corinthians Philippians 1st Thessalonians Philemon and Revelation so they try and undo the Bible and that's why we take OTI and that's why we take NTI to recognize that these men are flawed in their thinking, they are driven by doubt and skepticism, and not by, um, not by true scholarship at any level. Now, are there some lessons we can learn from the German theologians and higher critics? Yes, I believe that there are, and I want to go through these. Number one. I think it's important for us to learn that the way to reach skeptics with the gospel is not by watering down or changing the gospel. <laughs> it seems obvious. Many of the liberal theologians thought they could make Christianity more appealing to light- enlightenment rationalists if they abandoned the Bible, if they abandoned the historical authenticity of the text, and if they redefined the gospel as something other than salvation from sin through Christ. In doing this, they actually undid the very gospel they thought they were helping to preserve. Number two, true religion can be lost in just one generation. Most of the German liberals were the sons of Orthodox Protestant ministers. The fact that they turned their backs on the faith of their fathers is tragic, and as those training to be pastors, seminary students need to make sure they are shepherding their own families first and foremost. So I think there is a lesson for us in that as future pastors. Number three, German liberalism does not represent merely a divergent form of Christianity, but in actuality, a completely new religion. If historical fact is removed from the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. Paul makes that point clear in 1 Corinthians 15, where he asserts that if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then we are fools and our faith is worthless, and that is where I would place liberalism. Number four, the liberals honored doubt as being noble and intellectually honest. In reality, doubt is a heinous sin. It is a sin that Satan has been promoting ever since the Garden of Eden, specifically the doubting of God's word. To doubt God's word is to make God a liar. It is also to reject the true gospel for a gospel of one's own imagination. Number five, German liberalism teaches us that ideas have consequences and that bad ideas have really bad consequences. Millions of people in the last few centuries were tragically led astray through the influence of liberal theologians and higher critics. The warning of James 3 is particularly apt. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing as, that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. Number six, the social gospel of the liberals is still alive and well in many mainline Protestant churches. The skepticism of the higher critics is still very much a part of biblical studies in the academic world. Future pastors need to be ready to confront these ideas, these errors, with biblical truth. Titus 1.9 is where in the qualifications for an elder, Paul tells Titus that he must be able to refute and correct those who contradict. And then number seven, higher criticism in particular is built on the notion that the wisdom of man trumps the revealed wisdom of God. This is the height of arrogance, but it is not surprising since Paul himself noted that the wisdom of God seems like foolishness to the world. We must guard ourselves against the temptation to covet worldly praise and academic accolade. To be faithful to the gospel, we will necessarily be thought out of vogue with many of today's leading philosophical thinkers while we Should avoid anti-intellectualism on the one hand, we must also guard ourselves against the allure of whatever is popular in the secular academic community. Now, we have four minutes left. I just want to bring everything full circle by reading just a little bit from an article. This is from 2010, Christianity Today. And... uh, Scott McKnight wrote this article. Scott McKnight is one of the leading names, I suppose within broader evangelicalism, but one of the leading names in the quest for the historical Jesus studies. In that field, he's one of the leading names. Here's what he had to say in 2010. Historical Jesus scholarship has come to the end of the road. That started with David Strauss, remember? Two recent scholars have read the obituary for historical Jesus studies. James Dunn, in his hefty book, argues that the furthest we can get behind the Gospels is to the underlying strata of Jesus as his earliest followers remembered him. That's not very helpful. Thanks, James Dunn. Then next paragraph, Dale Allison, the other, whom I consider the most knowledgeable New Testament scholar in the United States is less sanguine and more cynical than done in his newest book, The Historical Christ and The Theological Jesus, which in my judgment plays taps for the quest for the historical Jesus. After three decades of work in and around the historical Jesus, Allison sketches the variety of views about the historical Jesus and the supposed modern theory that if we put our heads together we will arrive at firm conclusions. Allison offers this depressing conclusion. Progress has not touched on all subjects equally, and whatever consensus may exist, it remains mostly boring. Allison admits this about one of his own books on Jesus, and this is the real point I want to make here, this paragraph. Allison says, quote, I opened my eyes to the obvious. I had created a Jesus in my own image, after my own likeness. He's not done. Professional historians are not bloodless templates passively registering the facts. We actively and imaginatively project. Our rationality cannot be extricated from our sentiments and feelings, our hopes and our fears, our hunches and ambitions. Maybe we have unthinkingly reduced biography of Jesus to autobiography of ourselves. And Then he goes on to talk about how there's the problem of method. Finally, says the era of the quest for the historical Jesus is over. Two scholars, both highly devoted to the discipline of historical Jesus studies, come from two angles to relatively similar conclusions. The historical Jesus has run its course and it cannot deliver us the original Jesus. So here's Scott McKnight, a person of some renown within these circles, saying at the end of the day, we finally recognized that the Jesus that the quest for the historical Jesus has produced is not an image of the true Jesus, it's only an image of the people doing the study. Which brings us full circle back to what Augustine told Faustus. You might as well just acknowledge the fact that to reject some and try to believe other parts, but to believe some and reject other parts is to believe yourself and not the Gospels. And that's where modern higher critical studies have taken us. People creating a version of Jesus in their own image the sad thing about McKnight's article is he never comes to the place where he says, therefore, we should embrace the biblical Jesus. He comes to the point, kind of in a postmodern despair, and says, I guess we'll never know who Jesus really was. In fact, the title of his article is called The Jesus will <laughs> it's called "The Jesus will Never Know. And it just goes with the pessimism. Guys, you don't go down that path. We know who Jesus was because his gospels are recorded for us in the scriptures. And they are given to us through the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus himself told his followers would give them supernatural remembrance of the things that he did and said. So don't play any of these games. They end, it's a dead end. They end nowhere. It's, they're all off the cliff wondering how they got there. The way they got there was by abandoning the historical truth of the Bible to begin with. That's the sad story of liberalism. That's where liberalism comes from and where it ends is ultimately a nihilism and the postmodern admittance that we can't know anything for sure because all it is is a collection of opinions.